Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Today, we have Jeremy Harbour with us. He helps entrepreneurs buy and sell companies without banks, brokers, lawyers, or leverage. So welcome to the show, man. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, grateful to have you on. Um, so let's, uh, I, I always like to start off these uh, interviews from just like the beginning. So when you were younger, uh, you know, I was going through doing some research on you. I think you have, from what I can tell, five or six books, you know, tons of success. But when you were younger, were you as entrepreneurial as you are now? Or did you kind of like see this vision of yourself that you are now? Yeah, no, I, I think I grew up with it kind of in my uh, in my veins or in my DNA, you know, so uh, my one of my earliest memories was uh, my mum had like a little beauty salon and uh, and I cut down all the flowers from the garden was selling them in jam jars outside the salon when I was about seven years old. So my, my parents had this, uh, you know, do they chastise me for decimating the garden or do they encourage my kind of entrepreneurial behavior? You know, it was uh, uh, one of those kind of uh, things. But, you know, I had business cards when I was 12. There's a picture of me in a suit next to a garden shed with my logo on the on the shed when I was about 13. Oh, um, awesome. So, yeah, I was always, uh, yeah, always up to something. Gotcha, gotcha. And then I, um, you know, I'm sure it's it's obviously a sensitive topic, but I think it's important for people to know when when I was doing research on you, um, you, you lost your brother at 14 years old. And I from what I could from what I read, like that was a very big impact on your, I guess, like drive in entrepreneurship. Yeah, so, I, guess, I guess it was in hindsight. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. 10. I was 10. He was 14. Oh, you were 10. And of course. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's like a. Um, you know, we we're brothers and you know when you're 10 and 14 all you've done with your brother your whole life is fight with them you know um, yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant so so you have this horrible kind of uh, all, all your memories you know are, are not necessarily the memories you would have wanted to have when they're when they're no longer around you know which is uh yeah which yeah. is pretty tough but actually I, I grew up with quite a lot this sounds really morbid but i grew up with a lot of death my grandmother mm. was one of 14 kids and she was the youngest so i had all these uncles who we used to go visit and then I'd be going to their funeral, you know, uh, and there was a, a kid at school that committed suicide and another kid that died of cancer in my in my year at school. Um, oh, wow. and, uh, and and for me, I guess it was like, I, I figured it was like normal. And I used to have quite a bit of anxiety around this. You know, I used to think about it pretty much every night before going to bed, you know, is, am yeah. I going to wake up tomorrow kind of thing. And it was only when I got older, I realized that that was really unusual. You know, I'd meet 30 year old people that hadn't had anybody close to them die yet. And I was like, oh, okay. I had yeah. quite an unusual, <laughs> I had quite an unusual kind of set of circumstances. Yeah. And, I, and I guess it did drive me, you know, I left school when I was 15 because I kind of didn't want to wait. You know, yeah. uh, I, I looked at the next bit of, uh, of education as really just an entrance to, uh, to, to college. Uh, mm. Not necessarily, it didn't serve any purpose in its own right. You know, when you finish high school, there's like, you know, the extra bit of education you have to do before college. And it's kind of like, well, it only serves the purpose of getting you into college. And, yeah. uh, and, I, and, I, and I couldn't really see why, why do that extra two years. I figured, you know, if I started a business, even if it went wrong, which actually it did, um, <laughs> even if it went wrong, I'd learn a, learn a load more. Um, and sure enough, I'd been in business for like 10 years by the time my friends were finishing college. So. Yeah, no, I can completely, that was something that like struck me when I was two years into college. I was just like, it seems to me that this whole grade system, it's just to get this diploma. And I yeah, was like, yeah. but then the, even after you get the diploma, you still have to put in work to get a job. So I mean, I was all, like, I yeah, all the way yeah. through my, my education, I used to think this is 
excuse my French, this no, is you can pointless, do you know, this is like really <laughs> fucking pointless. Like, we've just sat through a year's worth of shit they could have taught us in two months flat, you know, like if they'd yeah. just done it, you know, really intensively, we, we could have learned this in such a short time. I now have kids and I get it. It's not mm. education, it's childcare. It's how uh. you get the kids, it's how you get the kids out the house. It suddenly, it all falls into place now, it makes sense, you know. Uh, I now understand yeah. why we have the education system we have. It's so you can actually get shit done in the day. <laughs> so. Totally, yeah. And I think it's more like social learning, you know. And like yeah, my, my yeah. dad always said that he, I think I forget what grade exactly. He's like after third grade, it's pointless. Like after they teach you how to read, write, and some basic math, like everything after that is like <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's like when you get a new dog, you've got to get it to you've got to get it used to hanging out with other dogs, or it turns into an asshole. You know. Yeah. I guess it's the same <laughs> with, uh, with children. Yeah. That's really what it is about. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your so your first business that well i guess your first business was like seven or so but the one out of college yeah. that failed which one was yeah. that yeah so well uh, i guess like most businesses you pivot you know frequently so it started out as me supplying watches and jewelry to market stalls and then i started uh, and i ran my own market stall as well selling watches and jewelry and and really it kind of morphed into selling anything buying and selling it was like a trading business and one of the things mm -hmm. i started trading was uh, video games but like the coin operated ones you know the great big uh uh, yeah. machines and then i realized actually you could put them into uh pubs and takeaways and uh, bars and things like this and people go play them you split the takings with the owner you kind of leverage other people's heat and light and electricity and so uh it's, it's quite a nice business model yeah so yeah. i kind of expanded that and i had 28 machines sited all over the, the county where i'm from in the in the uk and then i decided and about by the way at this point in my kind of career most things i touched had worked so I think I was a bit of an, an, an arrogant little ass at this point. And, uh, and uh, I decided to buy a, an amusement arcade, like a, a premises, you know, where you could put all of these uh, machines. And so I bought this premises and that was the business that went bust. It was that next level of expansion that basically uh, uh, fell over. Suddenly I was using other people, you know, my, from going from using other people's rent and heat and yeah. lights and electricity, I went to my own rent and heat and light and electricity. And also you have to attract the customers to come there. They're a, they're a very different kind of customer. They're kind of the, the people that are really into their gaming and gambling versus the people that might go to a bar and casually play on a, uh, you know, a thing that's flashing in the corner. So yeah, uh, yeah it, it, was a, it was a massive learning curve and I fell flat on my face. And, and I think that was really useful because it, it was a good sure. dose of humility at that, uh, at that precise moment in my life. Because like I say, I think before that, most things I tried had kind of worked. And that's, you know, in business, what I found out is most things you try kind of don't work. Yeah, uh, and that was quite a that was quite a valuable lesson. For sure, man. I think that's like people need to I think go towards the failure quicker because, like as yeah. you said, it was a big lesson. And I, we prolong it so long, and it's like if you you could just get it done now, <laughs> just like yeah, exactly. You know, and, and what I was I was eighteen when it happened, and of course, you know, emotionally I was destroyed. You know, I was like. Uh, I remember I had I'd moved away from my parents when I was 17. I lived in my own apartment when I was 17 years old. Mm. And uh, I had to move back with my parents, you know, tail between my legs. They didn't even have a spare room for me anymore because I've had a, a brother who was born since then, um, okay. you know. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, so it was all kind of like a, a big, uh, yeah, a big kind of um, uh, deal. But then I realized, you know, literally after two to three months of wallowing in my own self-pity and kind of licking my wounds at home, you realize, well, hang on a second, like I've got all my arms and legs. Uh, yep. nothing, ac nothing actually really changed. You know, the, the days before you go bust are horrible. You know, I remember having anxiety about the phone ringing. So the phone would ring. I'd, I'd actually 
sweat. I'd actually come out in a cold sweat because when I picked it up, there was somebody on the other end of it shouting at me and calling me horrible things. You know, it was like, <laughs> it, was not, it was not nice. And then after you go bust, it's like all of that goes away and you kind of, you have the best night's sleep of your, uh, of your life and, uh, and yeah. kind of, okay, you're, you're, you're pissed off and miserable because you failed, but actually nothing really broke. Um, and so I think the lesson I got from that was that this, you know, it feels like you're walking a tightrope, um, but the tightrope's only six inches off the ground. You know, so you yeah. lose sight of the fact that if you fall off, actually, it's not that big a deal. You can get back on again. And if you know 100%. the tie rope's only six inches off the ground, why not, instead of tiptoeing across it, why not take a fucking run at it next time? Yeah. You know, because what's the worst that can happen? No, 100%. That, and that just goes to show, I, I remember learning this. I read the four-hour work week when I was 20 years old. And that's what really, like, allowed me to mentally be able to, to drop out of school. And one of the things he talks about is, like, worst-case scenario. Right. Mm -hmm. And our imaginations go way further than like what it really is. And like, yeah, yeah. so my worst case was just like dropping out. What if I fail? Like all. And then I realized I was like, worst case scenario, I end up back at my parents' house with a nice pool in the backyard. <laughs> like, it's really not that bad. <laughs> like, yeah, and if, if you, you know, when you really think about that, it, it kind of alleviates the, um, the, the risk that you feel that you're taking because it's not as big as you think it is. Um, yeah, no, for so sure. it's, it's interesting. Um, no, it's interesting. That, that book came into my life as well, but much later on. So I'm in, uh, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, I think. So the, the, well, definitely. <laughs> so the, um, the, uh, my, in my day, it was, uh, the E-Mist was the big transformational book. Oh yeah, book. great book as uh, well. Yeah, really, yeah, really took me forward when I was probably like 16, 17. And I think, um, four hour work week probably came on, um, a little bit after I just sold my first company. It was about 2000, it was about 2006 or something. It'd be interesting to see when the four hour work week came out. Cause it was, a, yeah. it was somewhere around that period. And, yeah, that would uh, make sense. Yeah, because yeah, uh, 2010, it, uh, yeah, was when I read it. And and the thing I really took away from it, you know, this mini retirements thing he talks about. Well, yeah. I just sold I just sold a company, and I had a kind of a mini capital event, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that really got me thinking into uh, how instead of the kind of traditional focus of build a business to a huge size and sell it for a gazillion dollars, why not just sell businesses often for you know, a few hundred thousand or a, or a million and a bit kind of uh, dollars and actually transform your lifestyle with that money, you know, deploy mm -hmm. that into passive income that has a massive impact on your lifestyle. Because as entrepreneurs, you live hand to mouth and you can live hand to mouth for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, if you're not careful, whereas yeah. you can create capital events kind of every year or every couple of years um, that, that would have a transformational impact on your lifestyle um, and, you know, take you further. So that was a, that yeah. was a moment where I pivoted to that kind of model. Uh, was after reading that book. Let's talk about that more because I don't think a lot of people are really even thinking like that. So, you know, first thing, even in your introduction, so are you, when you first started out, you were obviously running your own companies, you built up yeah. some capital, but now you, you more so are looking to like buy companies that are already working, not with your own money, but with like the bank's money or so, and, the, and then uh, no, yeah. just, uh, yeah. yeah, so, well, so look, I guess it comes down to the, the, the epiphanies at different points in my journey. So I guess the first one was this idea, I always thought to be successful, you had to start a business and run, you know, work really hard. And then when yeah. I, uh, the, the business I started after the one I just described to you failed was a, a telecoms company. And okay. um, telecoms at that time, this was the late 1990s, um, was incredibly acquisitive. It was very fragmented. There were hundreds of thousands of small operators and it was very acquisitive. Everybody was trying to buy everybody else because it was a quick way to, to scale 
uh, your business. You could add a million of, of extra revenue just by acquiring somebody with a million of, of revenue. Mm. Um, so consequently, my weeks were like punctuated with these meetings with these uh, companies that were trying to buy me. And the interesting thing is all their deal structures were uh, kind of no money down. They weren't going to put any of their own cash in. They were going to, uh, you know, it was, it was money over time or, uh, you know, various other um, structures. And so I basically just in my mind went, okay, hang on a second. I haven't got any money either. Why don't I be the buyer instead of the seller? Um, mm. And I ran around a bunch of telecoms companies and pitched them ideas about how we could join forces, merge together. I could acquire them, pay them, pay them out later. They'd be worth more by joining me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mostly, you know, not getting it right. I was very young, very green. Um, and then uh, I found one that was motivated. He was one that literally the building he was in was about to be demolished and he had to move out and he didn't mm. you know, really want the expense of moving to a new premises because it was a, you know, a, a small business, but he had a thousand customers and we were connecting a thousand customers a year. So this was a year's worth of revenue for us, you know, a year's worth of customers. And, um, uh, and so anyway, I put my offer on the table for, for you know, uh, just literally paying him over a period of time after buying it, a, def a purely deferred payment plan, uh, vendor finance, they sometimes call it, or seller finance. Mm -hmm. And uh, he rejected that. But as the clock got, you know, the clock was ticking and it got closer and closer to kind of demolition day and the other offers that he was talking to kind of didn't materialize, which is often the case. There aren't that many yeah. buyers of small businesses out there. Um, I ended up getting the deal by default and, and that was lucky, you know, so I had some luck, but then I put myself yeah. in luck's way. So I guess that's how, <laughs> how I got lucky. And, um, uh, but it was an epiphany because we grew by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon. I didn't take any risk of investing in marketing or doing any sales or anything like that. We just added these customers to our, uh, to our customer base. It was entirely self-financing. And it just taught me that that was possible, even though it wasn't, it was nothing like a deal I would do now. But it taught yeah. me that you could do a deal like that. And, uh, uh, and and that was a real game changer for me because it was like, you don't have to run the marathon. You can just run the last like 10 yards and you still get the medal. You know, you don't have to do this. All the blood, sweat and years I've been investing in, in businesses. So um, after that, I went on a rampage. Two weeks later, I bought an IT company um, using a very similar uh, kind of <laughs> deal weeks, structure. That's awesome. Yeah, and and because it was kind of like it was like breaking your virginity. You know, once you've done it, yeah. like fuck, can I do this again? You know, how do I? <laughs> yeah. How, how do I do that? That was awesome. How do I do that again? Um, so, so, so I went and did another one, and and we grew that business like crazy over the next uh, uh, over the next eighteen months. In fact, went from one company to twelve companies. Went from one million revenue to thirteen and a half million revenue went from like 20 staff to 135 staff all in 18 months and um mm. uh, and that sounds really impressive because i've used all those great like uh, highlight numbers it was actually fucking chaos it was so hard <laughs> i often say to people the only thing worse than running one shit business is running 12 shit businesses <laughs> so it's, uh, it's actually really yeah it was really really tough really hand to mouth um i often described it as robbing peter not always paying paul you know trying to juggle 50 things at the same time it was uh, yeah and you know uh, as the you know, the CEO is the guy at the top. Um, you tend to only deal with the worst, shittiest, most unsolvable problems that everybody else has. So, you know, it filters through all the various different departments and find that when it lands on your desk, it's almost impossible to solve. And you yeah. get, you know, a few, a few of those every day. Um, so it Absolutely. really keeps you, uh, yeah, really, really keeps you interested. So anyway, then I sold, sold one of them. Uh, one of them went bust. Um, and that was a massive lesson for me because the one that went bust was one that I thought was just a keeper because it had a three-year contract with uh, the world's largest insurance company. 
the world's largest insurance company was AIG, and they themselves went bust in 2008. So, uh, okay. um, so we had too much exposure to one client, which is you know rookie error. Um, but nonetheless, you know the the one that I thought was the cash cow and the keeper wasn't. And so the the big lesson in that period of time was you you don't make money running businesses; you make money when you sell them. Um, mm -hmm. What I'd done is I bought all of these companies is take more and more income from them. And what I realized is the income is just what you spend. So your lifestyle expands into your, into your income and you don't really end up with anything left over. But when you mm -hmm. sell a company, you have this capital event that, you, that can really change your life because you can deploy that and create passive income that can have a transformational uh, impact on you. So I learned two things really, which is that you make money when you sell and the right time to sell is now because you know, something, you know, you yeah. can have a pandemic for Christ's sake, or you can have yeah. <laughs> a, yeah, or a global financial crisis, or um, Google could do it for free, or yeah. Amazon could get into your line of business or, or whatever, you know, so. Oh, uh, yeah. So, Amazon yeah, does so, that a lot. <laughs> this <laughs> so product's selling. going well. Let me replicate yeah. that. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, um, uh, so with this, that, that one that scaled that fast, like what were, and I guess it would be different depending on the company, but what were those like first hires that allowed it to scale that? Like, was it salespeople? It was, or? It was no, it was all acquisitions. So oh, okay, we literally, okay. we, we bought a, a telecoms company down the road that bolted into the telecoms company. We bought an IT company because telecoms and IT were getting more and more converged. So it was a really nice fit. Okay. Um, we bought a um, call center business called, you know, contact center. A call center is basically IT and telecoms um, yeah. at, at its core. Um, and yeah, we just kept bolting more and more businesses into the into the group that had Acquire. synergies or that we could figure out how to work with. We hired a recruitment company because we, we bought a recruitment company because we were spending so much on recruitment. Um, yeah. We bought the train. We bought the training company that was doing the training for the call center staff. Um, so yeah, gotcha. We just basically kept bolting these companies in. Now, how do you, and I guess, you know, it could be just as easy as you find buyers, but is there like a platform that you use or is it just networking? Like, how do you find people to yeah, buy? So those, yeah, those original ones were just networking. Yeah. Uh, so I used to go to those breakfast meetings, you know, the one where you stand up for a minute and talk about yeah. your, your business. Yeah, so I used to go to one of those every week because in telecoms is a great thing to sell at networking because everybody uses a phone, you know, so it was relatively uh, easy to get customers. Yeah. Um, but you turn up to one of those meetings and you say that you're an investor or you're looking to buy businesses and suddenly you're more interesting. It kind of shifted the yeah. conversation from hunter to like uh, farmer or hunter yeah. from hunter to someone really interesting that everybody wanted to talk to. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, and that, that, you know, opened tons and tons of doors, but, um, I later kind of found out some outreach things you can do. So I mean, in, you know, never use brokers, never Google businesses for sale. That's like a, that, that's a rabbit oh, yeah. hole you can get, you can get yep. lost down for, for weeks on end. That it's a complete waste of time. Um, okay. If you want, if you want to buy air conditioning companies in Kentucky, make a list of all the air conditioning companies in Kentucky and just go speak to them, find out yeah. what their ambitions are, find out what they're planning on doing with the business. Um, and you'd just be amazed after half a dozen conversations, how many link ups and synergies and opportunities you find just from within those, uh, uh, those, those businesses. So yeah, yeah. Never, never go through intermediaries, just go straight to the straight to the principal is the big lesson I learned. Very and, and is it kind of just my obvious, um, just what I'm thinking, cause I read that about, uh, in, in your kind of bio, you said like never buy a company that's for sale. Is it cause like, yeah. if it, if it is for sale, then maybe like something's wrong or something. <laughs> or like, no, it's not, it's not so much okay. that actually it's, yeah. it's the, uh, it's the brokers and intermediaries. They just make life really, really, uh, difficult, okay. unnecessarily difficult. And one of the primary ways they do that, you see a lot of the broker business model is around charging a fee to the seller. Um, yeah. and, and the fee that they charge the seller, it's like an upfront fee. 
um, basically keeps the lights on, pays the secretary, you know, does all, you know, all that stuff. So actually yeah. their business model is more about signing up new people for sale than it is about actually selling the businesses. They might, they might sell one by accident, but their yeah, primary business is listings. And, uh, and so to get people listed, they give them an artificial sense of what they might make from it. You imagine if you went to a realtor with your house and one says it's worth 150 grand, the other says it's worth 200 grand, you put it with the 200 grand guy. And so yeah. with businesses, they just tell you, ah, three million five million you know like they make, they make up numbers and then what they do yeah. is to support the crazy valuation they take your accounts and they manipulate them so that the numbers fit the price that they're trying to charge so they call yeah. it adjusted accounts but by adjusted it's basically yeah accounting fraud <laughs> so, <laughs> adjusted. yeah, yeah the, the enron school of bookkeeping i think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm curious uh like I, right now I'm reading this other book. It's called Poor Charlie's Accolade. And it's about oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Charlie Munger. Charlie and yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things he said from like watching Warren Buffett um, all the time was that Warren Buffett pretty much does two things all day long. He reads and then he like uh, has conversations with like his top relationships. So I'm curious on your end, like what is your, not just like the typical morning routine, although you can speak on that, but like what do your days look like now to continue to grow this? Yeah, so um, what's interesting, like we're in this pandemic at the moment for anybody that's, that's listening. So uh, everything kind of got changed for a lot of people, but actually um, we changed our business model to um, Zoom uh, in 2016. So we moved everything oh, wow. uh, um, virtual um, in 2016 and 2017. Um, and uh, uh, the, we, we still retain one small office with three people in it that are doing due diligence, but they don't even go into that office most of the time. They only go there when they're yeah. sharing, you know, sharing physical paperwork that they have to stick out on a table and, dis and discuss. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, so we were kind of already virtual, but my, so my typical day, I live between three different countries. Um, okay. so I'm either in Singapore, in Ukraine or in Spain, um, in Mallorca. Um, and so each country I kind of have different routines because well, there's different things around yeah. me, there's different, uh, there's different time zones I'm working on as well. So in, in Singapore, what I tend to find is I have, um, the whole morning is mine. So the morning will be me going to the gym, uh, you know, doing all that kind of stuff will be like the morning. And then the afternoon, I kind of start working. So uh, okay. kind of mid midday onwards, I'll, I'll work. And and, uh, and sometimes my last call could be like, you know, midnight or 1am because I'll be dealing with people in the US or in, uh, in oh, Europe. Yeah. Uh, right now I'm in Ukraine. And so uh, it's kind of the other way around. I have a a really, really busy morning when I first wake up. It's kind of taking the kids to school, um, lots of Zoom calls, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Then I have this big gap in the uh, uh, in the middle of the day, uh, which is my kind of me time where I can run around and do all the things that I, gotcha. I would like to do. And then, yeah, uh, the odd uh, the odd thing in the uh, in the late afternoon, like this. Yeah, uh, you guys <laughs> over, <laughs> over in the US. And uh, it, well, are I'll most of your calls are, are most of your calls like internal now, or is it? Are you still like doing a lot of relationships? No, so uh, yeah, so so my my core business right now is I I help small uh, small to medium private companies. So these are typically companies doing between kind of one to ten million of profit, and I help them uh, go public and then use the public company as a vehicle to do more acquisitions. So if you have a company and you have an ambition mm. to grow by acquiring your competitors. I help those companies go public and then use the public company to go and acquire um, uh, their competitors. And uh, so I probably speak to uh, like three or four of those a day, um, okay. companies that fit that profile. Um, and then the rest of the time is speaking to other stakeholders around that, that business, whether and they could be internal or external or finance related, you know, lawyers, bankers, those kind of uh, 
yeah. uh, those kind of people. But it's, um, yeah, I probably spend about three, four hours, three, three hours to four hours a day um, at my computer on Zoom. Um, yeah. And the rest of the time, rest of the time, I'm pretty, pretty free. So, so at one to 10 million, uh, and when you say, go, is that public in the US or is it in other, could it be? Uh, no, so uh, so yeah. the, the last company we listed was, uh, it's a UK PLC. Um, and okay. it's listed on the Frankfurt uh, Zitra, which is the main market in Germany. Okay. Um, and uh, and actually, in so we listed that right at the end of 2018. In 2019, it was the third fastest growing company in, in Europe, the third fastest growing small Incredible. cap in Europe, according to Financial Times. And uh, and it was actually the fastest growing small cap that issued a dividend in 2019. So wow. uh, yeah, it's been it's now uh, it's it started off as one company, obviously, and it's now a group of uh, I think it's 19 in there as of today. So okay, uh, 19, 19 acquisitions in less than two years is quite, quite <laughs> prolific. Yeah. So so just so I can understand, then I think it would be helpful for the listeners. So, like, how does that? So first off, there's a process that get it to go public. So if, like, however that works, but then once it is public, are you like leveraging, I guess, the people that are invest, like the, the company's value goes up and then you can. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously there's a big arbitrage between the value of a private company and the value of its, of, of a larger public company. And so yeah. that arbitrage effectively, when a, when a, when you, when a new company comes to join you increases the whole pie quite considerably. Yeah. Um, but the, the big advantage is with a public company, I mean, obviously you have the credibility because it's completely transparent. People can look at the accounts, they can see all the companies that are involved in it. That yeah. transparency gives you a lot of credibility. It's easier to go out and win customers. It's easier to go and do M&A deals. So, okay. um, uh, so the first thing is the credibility it gives you when you go into discussions. The other one is um, you can issue financial instruments that are tradable. So you can issue your stock, which is a yeah. currency effectively. Um, and as we do as well in uh, this company, MBH, we can also issue bonds. And bonds are like a debt instrument. Now, historically, when you've used bonds in mergers and acquisitions, what people tend to do is sell them to the market, raise cash, and then use the cash to do acquisitions. What mm -hmm. we do is we will uh, um, target a company where we will give the owners of that company some stock in the holding company and some bonds in the holding company. So effectively, they, from the bonds, they get some income. And yeah. after a period of time, they get the capital back. And on the stock, they obviously get the upside in the growth going forward. So they get to join part of the, uh, the kind of growth curve. And then for the general investors, they get the benefit of these profitable, well-run companies coming to join this group um, and constantly adding more revenue, more profit to, uh, uh, to the whole pie. Um, and and yeah. we think it fills an important space out there because, you know, there's, there's not much opportunity for small to medium-sized companies you can either sell or not sell um, yeah. you can't really you can't really go public um, and this provides a kind of uh, a framework or an umbrella that allows small to medium-sized companies to get the benefit of being a public company without going through the kind of the, the, the shitty bit of the process effectively yeah no i didn't even know you could at one to ten million go public so that's yeah I mean, that's huge uh, right there i didn't even know that's yeah, possible it's, yeah it's a, it's a small cap yeah so um we i mean we call the structure agglomeration um okay and, uh, uh yeah we, there's, there's lots about it online uh, gotcha yeah, so okay it's our government um, structure so um i want to talk about some of your books uh you know as this mm. is the authors unite show a lot of our listeners yeah, yeah, sure. are, <laughs> yeah. um so can you speak, how many do you have, five or six? Yeah, I, I, if, I, if I go through them, then I'll probably figure out how many I've done. So <laughs> yeah. back, back, in, right. back in 2012, uh, Capstone, which is the largest publisher of, of business books, as you know, approached yeah. me to write my story. Um, and 
Uh, and I said, sure, yeah, but you know, what I really want to talk about is how you buy and sell companies. And they said, ah, can you focus more on kind of startup? And I said, yeah, but I'm always kind of on stage telling people don't do startups, buy companies instead. <laughs> and they said, yeah. yeah, but we really want a book about startups. So I went, okay, so I wrote this book called Go Do, which is my, my life story plus uh, uh, you know, ideas on how to start businesses, what to do to start uh, businesses. And, and it you know, did the Amazon bestseller thing and, uh, and yeah. all that kind of stuff back in, back in 2012. Um, after that, in 20 Uh, and agglomerate was all about this governance structure that I was just talking about, which is, uh, you know, how you take companies public and how you do uh, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I co-wrote that with, uh, with a business partner, Callum Lang. Um, I then wrote a book called Never Buy a Business That's for Sale um, or Why You Should Never Buy a Business That's for yeah. Sale. Um, that's just an ebook or, a, you know, uh, on, on Amazon. Um, and then I have a new book coming out called uh, Go Do Deals. And uh, Go Do Deals was the book I wanted to write back in 2012 when, uh, uh, mm. when Capstone first approached me. And, uh, and it's basically um, how you source, acquire, fix and sell owner-managed businesses. So, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, the, the kind of, uh, yeah, the one I've had in me for quite a long time. And that, that comes out in December. Um, oh, nice! And, uh, yeah, so we're doing pre-orders at the moment. We've got we we managed to get the uh, the URL godo.deals, which is awesome. Nice. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so on godo.deals, we do this pre-order thing, and you can get like a a twenty-one day free uh, email course that we're bundling with it at the moment. Oh, to cool. Try and encourage people to pre-order. Um, so obviously, yeah. helps, our, helps our sales figures when we launch. Perfect. So so now with the writing. Um, did did you have some like assistance? Did you write these yourself? Like how, how did that work out? Yeah, so I, I I wrote the guts of it myself, and then we had okay. some uh, some fairly editing. heavy edit, fairly heavy editing. Yeah, so we I, all I, need I, it. My, <laughs> yeah, my my writing style is is how I talk, and so there's a lot of uh, slang in there, and particularly yeah. for the American audience, the British slang is quite hard to uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> grasp, and and it can be a bit shouty. Um, so mm -hmm. they need to tone it down sometimes. <laughs> in terms of, uh, uh, yeah. No, that's in terms right. of being a bit nicer to people. So, um, <laughs> so I'm curious too to actually dial back before we start talking about the books. You you had said um, so selling businesses is where you know you make the money, and then but also mm -hmm. passive. So what have you like? What have you seen to be the best like passive income investments that you like? Is it real estate or is it continuing to just um, do acquisitions? No, so I. I yeah, so I, I use uh, um, really boring traditional investments, so bonds and stocks um, oh, okay. and, yeah. and REITs. Uh, but uh, what you'll find is that when you reach um, a certain level of wealth, you can get into private wealth banking. And when you get okay. into private wealth banking, there are ways that you can play the bond, stock uh, um, and REIT market um, that basically generate way, way more income than retail investors have access to. Um, and I talk about I talk about this quite a bit. I've got some videos on 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 this. I talk about um, you know escape velocity investing, which is where you basically calculate what your um, you know annual spending requirement is, and then your first target is obviously to get enough invested to generate that income passively, so that uh, then effectively everything you earn is unencumbered. You can invest 100% yeah. of it, and uh, and that really starts to snowball your wealth. Um, but that gets much easier. So private wealth banking kicks in at about 10 million net worth and about 3 million of cash. Um, okay. That's the kind of the, when you can open one of those accounts, um, okay. and you get things like um, you know if you look at all the mutual funds and investment funds that uh, everyone says there's no point in investing in because the fees are too high. Um, yeah. Well, the fees are high if you're a retail investor, but if you're if you're in private wealth banking 
you can get what's called the institutional version of the same fund. So all of those funds, you get uh, an institutional version, which has basically a fee structure more like an ETF, um, okay. but it's, it's managed and you get, you know, much better um, upside. So some of these funds perform really, really well and have a very, very low um, fee structure. Um, and uh, plus you can use a bit of leverage on them, which basically uh, gives you huge returns. So when you have private wealth banking, um, you can borrow money against your own portfolio at 0.7% a year interest. So if you want to take uh, that money out and go buy a house, you can. So you can invest in a portfolio that's generating your income and still take cash out and go and do other things with it. In fact, I posted a video um, uh, last year on, on YouTube about uh, um, we came to Europe for the summer and we bought a Maserati Levante, kept it for the summer and then sold it. And I showed how the capital cost of that car for five months was $180. Um, $180 for a Maserati for five months. Um, So it basically, yeah, it's crazy. It just literally gives you stupid cheap money. Um, Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, And of course, you can use that for investments. You can use that for all sorts of uh, all sorts of things that also generate income. Got it. So have you mostly done, is it like, uh, so obviously first goal is get to 10 million so that you get access yeah. to this because that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I rec- I think it was like six months ago. I finished this. It's a very short book, the little common sense guide of investing. And it, the, the author just kind of talks about how index funds have outperformed, uh, like yep. five. So I, I've been just doing a monthly like into index funds. It's at like Vanguard, Admiral 500 or something, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, so either way, though, is your investments in the stocks, when you say kind of more boring, are you you're not really taking the profits out? Are you this is like long term? No. So, I, yeah, yeah. so I, I do take the income. So I live off the okay. income. Uh, gotcha. But I mean, again, with stocks. So when again, it's a private wealth banking thing. They have something called fixed coupon notes. So okay. fixed coupon notes are like an option agreement that you can use, but it's over a longer term. Normally options expire every month. Um, this yeah. is like an option agreement you do over a longer term based on uh, a basket of stocks. So you'd make your list of all the things that you want to own and they can include ETFs like the ones that you've just uh, yeah. mentioned. So you make your list of your model portfolio, if you like. You then, instead of buying them directly, you take these fixed coupon notes um, against these different uh, stocks and effectively... Uh, what they say is that if it drops by 20%, you buy it. Um, and if it doesn't drop by 20%, you get paid to wait. Um, oh, okay. And so it basically, it's like build, build your portfolio uh, every time there's a massive dip in the, in the market. Um, and the rest of the time, you're being paid to wait. But the amount you get paid to wait is quite high. Um, I literally, uh, I'm, I'm just doing one uh, that will um, execute tomorrow. And yeah. I mean, one of, them, one of them pays 13% a year and the other one pays 10% per year. While I'm waiting, <laughs> while I'm waiting to own these stocks that I will own if they go down uh, yeah. by a significant amount, and so um, it, it's it's quite yeah, it's quite nice awesome. income generator, yeah. And you yeah, very rarely okay. end up owning owning the underlying stocks. Gotcha. So it's uh, yeah. So so, so this that, yeah, go it's, a, it's a it's an interesting game. It's a it's a huge education in its own right. I mean, oh, I'm sure. you know, once you think you've figured out business, and you never really you know, if you understand. Four percent of business, you understand three percent more than everybody else, um, <laughs> and then and then you figure out M and A. And again, if you know, once you understand ten percent of M and A, you understand nine percent more than everybody else. Um, then you've got to <laughs> then you've got to learn about wealth. And you know, I mean, most entrepreneurs don't actually get to that stage. You know, where you have to have to learn you yeah. know, how you manage money and how you look after all of this kind of uh, stuff. And it's uh, it's a whole new like uh, area. It's 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 massive. Um, and, yeah. 
No, I, f- I feel like in life, it kind of like forces you to do it. Like I, I happen to be lucky enough to have a dad that's an accountant. And um, either way, you know, it was a few years ago when I started to pay what I think to be, you know, a lot in taxes. And you just, it like gets you right in the gut and you're like, I got to figure <laughs> out, okay, I figured out how to make money, but now I need to figure out what the heck to do with it because I'm giving it all to the government. Yeah. <laughs> so like, that's why I started reading all these finance books, like Robert Key. I started going down this whole yeah. rabbit hole because- you know, I, either way, it just like forces you because you're like, whoa, what could I have done with all that tax money? <laughs> Probably <laughs> like, I don't know, something extravagant. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so um, a plane or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not there yet, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Need a good tax write-off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so this is, a, this is a big question, but I feel like um, just based on the success you've had and, and all the impact you're having, I feel like you've probably thought of this. So we've talked about some numbers and gotten pretty analytical, but like, how do you, how do you want to be remembered? Have you like thought about like your, your legacy, like what you want to leave behind? Yeah. So look, I, I, and I think about this, or I've been thinking about this for, for many, many years in terms of the impact I could have on the world, because there are so many things you see when you look around you that are broken and need fixing and things that, mm. you know, shouldn't really be tolerable in a modern uh, society. And, um, you know, my, my skill set is pretty narrow, you know, this, this M&A thing I'm extremely good at. You ask me a question about marketing and I'll just look at you like dumb, you know, um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I really have a, uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of an area of competence that, that I, I spend a lot of time on everything else I'm pretty ignorant of. And so I, I look at it as how can I apply the skills that I've got for the maximum uh, impact? And what I realized is that, you know, um, entrepreneurs are change agents. When you, when you make entrepreneurs wealthy, they then tend to go on and solve the problems that have affected them in their life. So, you know, Larry mm-hmm. Ellison lost, lost people close to him to cancer. And so he's invested huge amounts in cancer research. Now, because he's an entrepreneur and he's smart, that money is really targeted around things that will have a positive impact and actually solve the problem. Um, uh, same thing with Sean Parker at, at Napster. You know, he put 250 million into an open source system that allows all the cancer research laboratories to share their data. And they reckon that that's shaved 50 years off of cancer research because he's smart, he knows how to target it. That's his, it's his area of expertise and he can have a massive uh, impact with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I believe that you make entrepreneurs rich, they then go and solve, you know, whether it's homelessness, cancer, um, you know, uh, whatever it is, I think they will then go on and, and fix that problem. My, my big bugbear is inequality and uh, mainly inequality of opportunity, the difference that exists for different people um, to get started in the first place. You know, you can't, yeah. uh, uh, if, if you at least give everyone the same chance at the beginning, I think then uh, we have a much fairer um, society. What people then do with that opportunity is entirely up to them and they can live or die by that, those decisions. Um, at yeah. the moment, it's it, they've got too many, you know, there's too many excuses around where you've come from or what background you have or what opportunities you had when you were young. And I, I was very fortunate with the opportunities I had and the parents I had. And so, uh, yeah, I see that as, as being a huge advantage in my own life. And I'd like that playing field leveled uh, in, in that respect. Um, mm. And so the way I, I see to do that with, with uh, what I'm doing is, is basically helping entrepreneurs uh, become wealthy through business because I think you know uh, automatically that doesn't happen. What tends to yeah. happen is people work for 20, 30 years. As I say, their income increases, but their lifestyle just increases to fit that income. So if I can educate people on how to buy companies to make their business bigger, how to sell companies to create capital events so they create wealth for themselves, and put together these groups of uh, public companies which uh, which effectively 
um, empower tons of entrepreneurs with, with lots and lots of wealth, um, then uh, we have this chance of kind of reconnecting entrepreneurship with money because it's kind of got a bit detached in the last 20, 30 years mm. where um, you know you don't necessarily have a pot of gold at the end of the uh, at the end of the rainbow. So yeah, if we can yeah. show entrepreneurs how to become wealthy, I think make enough entrepreneurs wealthy, they then go on and solve some of the world's uh, biggest problems. So that's, yeah. that's my mission. And I, I have a book about it. It's called Democratizing Wealth as an author's channel. Yeah. Um, I've written the first, I've written the skeleton of it. Well, I've written most of it actually, um, but we need that uh, that brutal edit next. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> <That's always fun. laughs> so I reckon uh, I reckon that one's probably, uh, yeah, 2021 at some point, um, okay. democratizing, democratizing Wealth will come out. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's, there's some ideas in there around how we yeah, fix inequality and, uh, and how we uh, yeah, make everything fairer. Awesome, man. Well, definitely if you, when that one comes out too, if you want to come back on, I'm happy to, to discuss that one with you. Um, Fantastic. I, uh, I appreciate you coming on. Incredible interview. I, I kind of want to leave the floor to you. If there's anything else you want to share, uh, you can. And then also um, a website for the recent book and then just main website or social medias wherever people can stay yeah. in contact. Yeah, fantastic. So um, yeah, obviously godo.deals is the URL for, mm -hmm. for the new book. And if you um, pre-order there, we give you this 21 day email course while you're waiting, because you have to wait all the way until December. So, um, <laughs> but if you if you pre-order every, every day for 21 days, you'll get an email that will take you through the ideas that we talk about in the book, basically how you source businesses, how you acquire them without using cash or, um, or using banks or lawyers or anything like that, uh, or brokers. Um, and then how you fix them, how you sell them, how you create, you know, these capital events, how you create wealth, uh, uh for yourself. So, um, that, that's the, the other thing is obviously my website, jeremyharbour.com. I'm British. So we spell Harbour with a U in it, H-A-R-B-O-U-R. Um, but jeremyharbour.com for, uh, uh, all the other stuff. And, uh, yeah, I'm on, um, quite active on Twitter and Instagram and, and, uh, YouTube, uh, the YouTube channel is the Harbour Club. Um, mm. have a look on there. There's a few hundred videos of ideas around this topic of buying and selling, uh, businesses. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're always putting tons of content out there to try and, uh, try and help people understand that this, uh, this path exists for them, you know? Mm -hmm. Perfect, man. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you very much. The Authors Unite show is sponsored by AuthorsUnite.com. Your one-stop shop for becoming a profitable author and maximizing your impact.